If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have a great guest on the line today. I'm talking to Sal Fazolari. Sal is the founder and CEO of Salvatore Fazolari Advisors, LLC. Prior to starting his consulting company, he was the chairman, president, and CEO of Hosco Corporation. Hosco Corporation is a multi-billion dollar company that provides industrial services and engineered products primarily to the steel, construction, railways, and energy industries worldwide. The company employs 19,000 people in 350 sites in 53 countries. Sal has held numerous senior management positions and has a broad-based professional experience in management, advisory, board service, private equity, public speaking. His career has spans over four decades. He's currently a board member of several companies. A few of the companies Sal sits on the boards of include RPM International Inc., Orange Hook Inc., Garnet Fleming Affiliates Inc., Bowman Hat Company, and he also serves as an advisory board member to a few private equity firms, including Current Capital LLC, as well as AEA Investors LP. He's the author of the CEO Lifeline series of books, the first of which is Nine Commitments Every CEO or Every Leader Must Make, which was published in 2014. And his second book was just released two weeks ago, which is Exceptional Habits of Elite Companies. So I'm pleased to have Sal on the show today to tell us a little bit about himself, his business experience, and his background. Sal, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chi, and thank you for those very kind words. I'm honored and obviously very happy to be on your program today. I'm very excited to speak about my new book, which is really four decades plus in the making. Actually, probably a lot longer if I start uh, just, you know, with my career back as a kid. Yeah. Uh, probably just like you, you know, I started working when I was very young. I actually had my first job at age eight and from there on i haven't stopped working since so i have uh, many 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 decades of work experience and this book is really the culmination of all those experiences and, and knowledge that i gained tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to become the ceo of a multi-billion dollar corporation i'll uh, be happy to do that well i lived the dream I really did. I embodiment of what's called, you know, living the American dream. Yeah. I'm an Italian immigrant. I came to the United States uh, when I was nine years old. And, uh, you know, it's like all immigrants, very, very poor, literally with uh, the shirt on our back. And that was it. Worked very hard. Uh, and uh, I was very fortunate to uh, obtain a job uh, in the internal audit group when I started at Harsco. And uh, I worked my way from a staff auditor all the way up to chairman, CEO, and president of the company. I held just about every job you could think of in the company. During that goal, I was the head of the internal audit group. I was the corporate controller, chief accounting officer. I was the treasurer. 
I was the CFO for 10 years. I was the president uh, of the company as well. And then I became the uh, CEO and chairman uh, ultimately. So it was a long journey. It was uh, an incredible journey. Obviously, as you can appreciate, particularly given my background. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was very lucky, you know, to have the right people take an interest in me and and help promote me. Mm. Now, when you talk about lucky and having the right people take an interest in you, what what do you mean by that? Because I know as an immigrant, sometimes you might feel, oh, I'm not good enough, or I don't have the skills, or I don't have the background. But you you came, you worked, you saw the system, you saw what you wanted, you went for it, you stuck with it. There were many challenges along the way, which we'll talk about. But tell us a little more about that luck that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I'm a big believer in luck, and I talk <laughs> about it in both books. Uh, so were two of my favorite business writers, uh, particularly Jim Collins, who's by far my favorite. He talks extensively about luck, and I am a true believer of that. I've studied that quite a bit. And what I mean by luck is, you know, being at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. There's events, having the right person recognize you and, mm-hmm. and decide to, to back you. I did have that person who I actually ultimately was his successor and uh he was in senior management at the time when i was in internal audit and uh he took a liking to me i was very lucky that he did and uh, he and i worked together for you know 25 years and he brought me all the way up uh, and there was one other person as well so between the two of them you know they brought me up along the way and uh so you know obviously i worked hard but yeah. as you well know, a lot of people work hard, right? But you don't get the right opportunities. So yeah. I was lucky that they took they took an interest in me, and I was at the right place when those positions became available. That's purely random. That's as you know. There's a, so many, and I've heard, uh, I've interviewed so many CEOs, and I've spoken to so many CEOs, and the the good ones that are humble will tell you that, similar to what I said that they were lucky. And what they mean by that is during their career, they came across a lot of talented individuals, Yeah. but those individuals never had an opportunity to really show that skill for mm-hmm. a lot of reasons. Mm. So that's kind of what I mean by that. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. I totally agree. Sometimes it's just opportunity, meeting, preparation, and then you find yourself at the intersection of both and then things start to work out for you better than other people that either have more skill, more talent, more connections. So yeah, luck is a major factor on the road to success in life. What were some of the main challenges you faced leading such a large organization? Well, the, the biggest, ch- actually, I was confronting uh, several challenges at the same time. I didn't know it quite exactly at the moment I took over. I had to, here's, here's the luck thing again, right? Yeah. I was unfortunate from a luck standpoint to take over as CEO on January 1, 2008. Uh, I mean, technically, I actually took over August of uh, 2007 when I became CEO-elect. And uh, so anyway, let's say the fourth quarter of 2007, when the Great Recession began, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I took over literally as the Great Recession began. As you all know, the Great Recession clobbered just about everyone, right? But some companies were punished much more severely than others. We were one of those. And the reason we were punished much more severely because we were in two of the most cyclical end markets you can pick, steel and construction. Wow. And those two markets just got hammered. I mean, 
we just to show you the impact uh, the company revenues peaked one year at four billion the following year it dropped to three billion over a course of 12 months because of the great recession we lost a billion dollars in revenues mm. it no company can survive you know very well that kind of hit when yeah. you see your revenues drop so I was confronted with you know massive cost cuts to uh, you know survive that significant downturn and we did we cut 230 million dollars of costs we did all kind of other things uh, we also you know consolidated uh, and but did not stop the investment side we invested particularly in China and India, which uh, today now I believe is bringing a lot of value to the company as a result of that. But, you know, so not only we weren't just cutting, we were also selectively investing, which is a very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we were trying to transform the company to make it, you know, more global, more innovative, more customer centric and, and those kind of things. So it was a very difficult thing to do. And, but we Navigated through this, I think, relatively well through, you know, end of 07, 08, and 09. <clears throat> what happened then is we got into 10 and beyond, uh, we got hit with another major crisis, which in my view, for us, because of our footprint, we had 53% of our revenues were based in Europe. Well, back then in 2010, early 2011, as you may recall, that was the European sovereign debt crisis. Europe spiraled literally down as fast as you can imagine during that time period. Similar reasons that, you know, a lot of the U.S. companies spiraled out of control during the Great Recession of 07, 08. And so no sooner were we coming out of one major economic uh, you know, crisis or turbulence, uh, major turbulence. In fact, it was the worst in 80 years, right? The U.S. crisis. And then we got hit with the sovereign debt crisis, which actually, believe it or not, had more adverse effect on us because 53% of our business was based in Europe. So it was a very, very difficult time for the company. But we, again, managed to, I think, get through it, you know, relatively okay compared with many, many other companies that uh, were enduring, you know, such hardships and so forth. But a lot of lessons learned, right? I mean, a lot of the uh, lessons in my two books come out of those uh, experiences and, and so forth. So, and um, and I obviously, I'm a much better manager, much better advisor as a result of having those experiences. Because as uh, I'm sure you've read over the years that uh, you talk to any thought leaders in business, uh, they will tell you, including some greats that go back, you know, even thousands of years, some of the great thinkers of the Greek philosophers and so forth, they will point to one thing that really experience is indispensable, right? There's nothing like experience. There's no substitute like an experience. You cannot really gain tremendous perspective on things without living it. Yeah. And believe me, I I lived it, I can assure (laughs) you. You mentioned something about innovation. That, that got me thinking that innovation and disruption are the two biggest things that are affecting, I would say, even 100% of the companies around the globe right now. Uh, most companies seem to talk about innovation a lot, but when you look at it closer, they're not you know, taking any risk. 
they're not doing anything to actually be innovative to stay ahead of the curve now is that because of a lack of time money or do they lack the commitment or the will to actually implement innovative strategies and drive in order to change the way they're doing business uh, it's a great question, Chi, and I think it's all the above, in all honesty. And, and I may add one other thing. Maybe uh, you need the board to be very engaged in, uh, in innovation. And I, I think for whatever reason, uh, companies think they're innovative. Some uh, view innovation through a, a very narrow lens. And uh, and then a lot of companies just get complacent because they think they they you know because of arrogance and other things past success and they just kind of believe in uh, certain things that are really not true mm -hmm. and so that what happens over time cumulatively these have a dramatic effect on the company and they lose sight of what's going on in the place and then lo and behold next thing you know they're in deep trouble. Um, so let me, let me just start. I'm a big, big believer of innovation, right? Through all my clients that I consult with, as well as particularly private equity, because most of my focus the last six years has been on private equity, yeah. which has been tremendous, tremendous experience because I have the highest respect for private equity. No one it can run companies better than private equity, other than maybe, you know, the true, true elite companies like Apple and you know, and Google and so forth. But other than the true elite companies, no one runs companies better than private equity. These guys are just fanatical, you know, about operational excellence, strategy, you know, and so forth. And now we can get into that a little more. But, but getting back to innovation, the thing with innovation that I think a lot of leaders don't think clearly about is this. You need to view innovation is very holistically so to me and i'll give you an example uh, to me innovation is really everything you do in the company so it's from the way you close your books in the finance side to the way you process customer orders to obviously how you deliver your service or your product how you you, you improve your products or create new products you know how you uh, even internally you know, communicate and so forth. So innovation really needs to touch everything in the organization. And this is where a lot of companies don't understand. They think it's just simply, you know, new products, new services, you know, that kind of stuff, which obviously is very important, mm -hmm. but it's only one piece. And I'll give you the best example that I've ever come across to me, which is timeless and really captures the essence of it is, of course, Steve Jobs, right? Yeah. The poster child for innovation. But if you read Steve Jobs' book, what does he talk about? He says in, his, in the book that his most important innovation was really the way he organized Apple. Now think about that. Here's the best technology company on the planet mm -hmm. and that he created, the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest CEO of all time. But yet he talks about, and he was so proud of the fact the way he organized Apple was one of his greatest innovations. That just says it all, right? Yeah. He, he, this guy could see that, hey, it's not just the products. It's yeah. just how the whole company is organized, how it runs, how it functions, and so forth. Uh, what I can use to summarize that is not the what, is the how. You can have two people running the same exact company. The way one person will structure the operation is different from the other person, and that's what drives success.
You better believe it. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Let's dive into your first book now. What were some of the lessons that drove you to write that first book? Well, the first book um, really was a lot of lessons learned, right? That, that, that was really the essence behind that book. And so, and but I, people don't want to just hear about lessons learned. And the more I started writing about the that's how I started the book. And the more I thought about it, I said, well, I, I need to take this to another level. So I came up with these nine commitments. Okay. And what I, which is a framework, is a management framework. I said, what are really the two most important parts of the organization? Put the board aside, mm -hmm. which I talked about the board in my third book, but on my second book, I mean. Um, so I said, what are the two most important elements? Obviously, it's the leaders and, and then, of course, the enterprise itself. So I said, there's really three life, I call them lifelines because metaphorically speaking, you know, everyone needs lifelines, right? And uh, you can't survive without them. You need yeah. them in mountaineering. I use mountaineering as my metaphor, but to get the point across. So you oh. have three personal lifelines and six enterprise lifelines is what I came up with. Yeah. So what are so the... within that... No, go on. I'm sorry, go on. No, 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 no. So within that, you know, you have the, uh, so the three personal lifelines I came up with were really one and, and, and the most broadest is really your characteristics as a leader. So I identified 30 specific characteristics that I studied and observed over my, you know, 40 years of business, right? What did I admire in people? Uh, what character, you know, for example, intuition, instinct type things, you know, ethics, uh, perseverance, uh, th those are kind of characteristics. So I identified 30 characteristics that I think are really vital for a leader to possess. Some of those characteristics are innate and others, you know, need to be developed. And, uh, but the, the combination of those things were really defines a leader and ultimately really make the the path forward for them to be successful or not and reach that summit. The second lifeline, uh, individual lifeline, is what I call indispensable experiences in the book. Well, you know, indispensable experiences is what I, what I mentioned earlier, right? The indispensable experiences, really, you are a, a culmination of all your experiences. Yeah. What's important is to have the right experiences. So that's a tricky thing. So... I, I had a guy I used to work with, I never forgot, it was a great statement he used to make. Uh, someone would come to him and say, hey, I've just found this individual has 30 years of experience. And uh, so he would, look, he would look at the resume. He'd say, yeah, no, he doesn't have 30 years experience. He has one year experience 30 times. Yeah. <laughs> and so think about that. So that's what I mean by indispensable experiences. You really need to have the right mix of experiences. Like in my case, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. So, you know, I was a corporate controller. I was a CFO. I was a president, which uh, ran the operations. You know, all these types of jobs I had, I was an auditor. So I lived out in the operations for 15 years, you mm -hmm. know, in the audit field. Mm -hmm. uh, so all those indispensable experiences really formed that foundation for me to, to ultimately become CEO. I could have never become CEO had I not had those you know, particularly the C-suite experience of CFO as well as president and running the company. And so indispensable experience is very important. So when you're developing a talent management uh, 
program for your, your future leaders, you need to make sure that they get the right indispensable experiences. And that's, so that's that lifeline. The third one is proactive actions. That's kind of a characteristic as well, but I left it out as a separate lifeline because I believe it's that important. I believe that you need to be very proactive as a leader. So not just as a characteristic, but also as a lifeline. If you're not constantly proactive, you don't take the game to, to where it needs to go. If you're reactive, you're going to, you're just going to get, you know, you're, you're going to, the, the game's going to end on you because, uh, ultimately everything will catch up to you. So you need to have this proactive mindset, which I viewed as a third lifeline. Then I have six enterprise lifelines, which are just as vital just as important. And those six lifelines, uh, just real quickly, if you want, I can yeah. run through them. Yeah, let's run through them. I could talk an hour just one of these lifelines, right? <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's how vital they are. But uh, business model, right? If you don't have the right business model, and what I mean by the business model is I have two parts to the business model. One, we already talked about the way you organize the company. The second part of the business design is your unique capabilities as an organization that uh, Michael Porter talks a lot about. So that's, that's lifeline one. Two is what I call learning entity. You need to be, have an organization that has the ability to learn. And that needs to be instilled and, you know, mechanisms and culture of the company need to make sure that Training. the company learns from the state well as success. All these this need to be really good at executing, right? Yeah where the business model is really a strategy. Uh, exceptional capabilities are, is really execution. The fourth one is what I call people excellence. Well, people excellence is really obviously your people. You know, you need to have the 18, everything around talent management um, and, uh, you know, development of your people and your leadership team from your global leadership team to your key seats to your executive suite to your board to everyone else in between it's all about the excellence in people and how you go about developing these great leaders uh the fifth uh, lifeline is really uh distinctive culture again if you study a lot of great companies and a lot of great leaders they always talk about culture if you don't have a healthy vibrant culture in the organization you will not give you'll never be an elite company mm -hmm. And culture is driven by a lot. We, you know, like I said, we can talk about it, each of these uh, forever, but I'll keep going. The final one is what I call core philosophy. Your core philosophy is really your core purpose or your mission. A lot of people call it mission. I call it core purpose or purpose. Your purpose is your, 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 why, why do you exist as an organization? Which is actually probably the most fundamental, most important, right? Because if you don't know what your core purpose is, you, you really, don't know what you're even doing as an organization. And then as a subset of that is your core values, which kind of fall in line with your core purpose. Yeah. And the core purpose one is interesting to me because I've studied a lot of companies and I'm amazed. And I talk about this in my new book quite a bit, uh, particularly in the Q&A section, where how many people don't understand what a core purpose is? I think there's a book out there called Why or Why, Why, Why or something, which kind of talks about the core purpose and uh, Collins talks about it extensively uh, mm -hmm. Michael Porter many others you know talk about it extensively but I'm just if you go on and look at websites you're, I'm just always amazed how lack of clarity 
on the company's core purpose other than the tech sector. Yeah. If you go out and look at the tech sector, they, they get it perfectly. I mean, well, my favorite core purpose of all time is Disney actually? Yes, well, um, I love Disney's Disney. core purpose. Okay, you know that one. You yeah. know uh, to make people happy, right? Yeah. That's I mean, think about it. It's so simple, but yeah, wow, is that powerful? Yeah, and it, and it cuts across every single thing they do. All their business lines, theme parks, movie theaters, films, uh, TV shows. Everything is centered towards making people happy, and they integrate that so well. I think they do it. Do it. Think almost on par with amazon but those are the two main companies that do things very well especially when it comes to uh, living out their, their core purpose yeah and uh you know google when they first started you know that i think their core purpose was excellent as well you know i think it was something like to organize world's information and make it universally accessible something like that but then mm -hmm. the reason they changed their name to alphabet because they started uh, moving away from their core purpose and so they want to, uh, they didn't want to deviate, obviously, from their core purpose. So they let Google stay as Google. Then their other businesses have their own core purposes, mm -hmm. which makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. So, but anyway, I'll, I'll, uh, I think I've said enough about that. Yeah. No, 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 that's good. Now, I want to draw one thing here before we now move on to the second book. And, um, and that is, you mentioned culture, you know, as one of the six corporate lifelines. So, given everything that's going on in the marketplace, especially in the news, everything we've heard from Uber to um, what's it called, United, and all the other companies, why is it that a lot of CEOs uh, seem to just pay lip service to culture and they don't take it as seriously as you would expect? Is it a policy problem or what? It's interesting. I think it sort of goes back to what I said about some of the other lifelines, uh, you know, or when we were talking about innovation. Mm -hmm. I just think they don't understand. Some of them either don't understand what culture really is or because they just have so many other things going on that they don't implement the right mechanism. See, I'm a real big believer in mechanism, right? So, like, for example, to make my point here. If you can say, yeah, I want to create a great culture, but if you don't, if you don't build and implement mechanisms to ensure that happens, mm -hmm. you're not going to get anywhere. And the best example of this, let's say integrity. Let's talk about integrity for a second. So you can say, yeah, we're an ethical company. You know, we, we really believe in, but that's all. You just talk it, but you don't walk it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a mechanism for integrity would be your, your code of, of, of ethical business practices, right? You codify what the practices are. You train people on the code of conduct. If people violate that code of conduct, they're immediately dismissed or, you know, actions taken. That's what I mean by mechanism. You've got to build all these mechanisms in the organization to ensure that you live it. So where culture, it's even more complicated because culture is all-encompassing, right? Yeah. And uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's a whole different ballgame there. And I just think they've not particularly say a company like uber because they're just they're flying at 180 miles an hour and there's no doubt in my mind they never even took the time to think about building you know the right mechanisms to ensure they create you know a very healthy culture there exceptional habits of elite companies and i think 
when you were talking about you know working with private equity firms and doing things at an elite level, I I, I want to throw this first question to you, which is um, how why 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 is it that private equity equity companies do things so differently in terms of driving performance at their portfolio companies to operate at a higher level compared to companies that are not operating at the elite level? Well, it goes back, I think it's a, it, part of it is a cultural thing, but you got to remember, okay, it's a totally different business model, right? Mm -hmm. um, say from a particularly a public company, you couldn't get two more dramatically different uh, business models. So if you look at the um, private equity model, first of all, they're living on a very short cycle, right? Private equity guys, they turn companies. That's what they do because they get a lot of money from pension funds. That money has to be returned at some point. So they have a singular focus. They're going to take buy a company and they're going to make it, take it from good to great, or they're going to make it, you know, they're going to greatly improve it or make an elite company if they can. And so what they focus on is a couple things. One is strategy. Two is execution, right? Yeah. And three, leadership. The, the three things I talk about extensively in my new book. But what they do with that though is they build the right mechanism. So. Like, for example, uh, compensation. They align the interests of the, uh, the managers, the owners, as well as the board of the private equity firm all are very heavily invested. So if you look at a public company, for example, a lot of boards are not really heavily invested in the company, you know, honestly. They all have shares, right? Yeah. But nowhere near the level that the boards have in private equity groups, number one. So the level of investment is dramatically different there. Two, same thing as ownership. And, you know, there's always exceptions, obviously. I'm just talking generalities. Mm -hmm. The management team usually is a heck of a lot more, you know, heavily invested in a private equity firm than they are in a public company. So you got that aspect as well. And the third thing is they don't have all the distractions, uh, the, the public companies run by private equity. That the public company, the public companies, they got shareholders, they got analysts, they have, you know, quarterly reports, they got all these analyst days, they, 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 you know, they got the SEC, they have all, all these things. It just, it's from a time standpoint, value, whatever. I mean, it's clearly not creating any value. Most of that stuff. So, the, the amount of the, the inordinate amount of time the CEOs particularly have to put in. For all those things, you know, managing the board even. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. That's why most CEOs work 80 hours a week because they can't – it's two jobs they're doing basically. Yeah. They're doing one to deal with all the things I talked about. The other one, they're trying to see customers and trying to run the company. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are some of the lessons in your new book, The Exceptional Habits of Elite Companies? Sure, sure. Um, what I tried to do with this book is – I try to write something that I think would really help particularly newly appointed CEOs or new, you don't have to be a CEO, obviously it could be a new leader or something. Uh, people that are thrown in a situation that maybe were not as well prepared, you know, by the company for various reasons that maybe perhaps they should have been, or just simply there wasn't enough time, you know, and also because the world has changed so much and there's just, you know, it's gotten so complex and so forth and so on. So what I try to do is put is map out a framework here that I think could be very indispensable to particularly newly appointed leaders mm -hmm. 
as well as, you know, uh, say, for example, executives that go back for an, an executive MBA program, right? So this would be an ideal book for, for, for those kind of uh, sessions. So that was the primary objective. And it's really that framework that I think would help. And it's made up of, you know, the what I call the, the foundational pillars, which is, you know, the strategy, the um, uh, execution, and so forth. And then the, you know, the nine lifelines, and then the 102 habits, uh, specific habits that I think, which are made up of, you know, enterprise habits, leadership habits, as well as board habits. That's how I bifurcate or segment the book into those those three things. And uh, so within each one of those, um, you know, I talk about all these vital habits that I think you really need to possess in order to achieve, you know, excellence or achieve elite status as an organization without all these. So if this is kind of similar to, you know, what I mentioned with the private equity model. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same thing. If you don't have the leadership of the company, uh, which I consider mainly the top 100, you know, obviously includes everyone, but the top 100 being the most important. If, so you have the leadership, the top 100, the board, and the enterprise itself through its, you know, uh, mechanisms and processes and so forth and so on. And practices. If you don't have those three three things working like a a finely tuned orchestra, you cannot achieve elite status. Mm. And uh, so that's what I was trying to point out here. So in each of the habits, you know, build on on, on each other. Yeah. And um, and that that's in essence what the book is all about. Mm. Share some stories from your experience that led you to to develop some of these habits? Absolutely. Uh, great question. Let's see. Uh, maybe let me just start. I'll start with the leadership ones first and then just kind of go through it that way. How's okay. that? That's fine. One, one of the most important that I talk about, and it's sort of a characteristic as well, uh, that I talked about in the, my first book, and that's what I say, Habit. it's habit number three in the book, and it's go with your instinct. It will never fail you. I, I can tell you, G, that there's one thing that sticks out of my mind over my 40-plus year career, professional career, that is really like seared in my brain is the uh, not going with my instinct, and I paid the price. If I reflect on my career, all the times that I did not go with my instinct, it always came back to haunt me. Mm. When I did go with my instinct, it always worked out. Yeah. So I try to stress in this that uh, you really need to rely on your instinct. Now, what I said, though, is that you know everyone has different abilities there, right? A yep. guy like Steve Jobs probably had the greatest instinct on earth, right? The guy was just incredible instinct. We're not Steve Jobs. Yeah. But, uh, but we're never going to be speech jobs. But you still, everyone still has a certain amount of instinct. And I, and what I point out in my book, what's very important, uh, that took me long, a lot of years, a lot of decades to figure out, is that you can actually greatly enhance your instinct by doing two things and focusing on two things. One is being disciplined. Mm. Okay, in everything you do. Discipline. And second developing critical thinking capabilities okay so 
if you're a very good critical thinker, it can actually help you uh, tremendously in making better instinctual, you know, uh, decisions and so forth. And so that's what I kind of emphasize, you know, in my book. The uh, the military, by the way, uh, which I I've got to know over the years through various uh, participation things that I did. They teach you know critical thinking quite extensively and now I get it why they do that because it's it's uh, it's really important so I would recommend to your listeners that if there's any takeaway from this uh, podcast yeah. is that really rely on your instincts but make sure that you're very disciplined in everything you do and make sure that you develop over time critical thinking capabilities uh, so you can rely more consistently and help you rely on your instincts and it'll help you a lot in your career yeah. And what are some ways to develop these uh, critical thinking capabilities? Well, um, one way is it to, um, you know, really truly understand, right, what, uh, you know, those critical thinking capabilities, uh, how, to, how do you do that? Well, part of it is, you know, uh, is getting, is training your mind on how to think better. That is, make sure that you're, you have facts, for yeah. example. That's a that's a critical part of that, right? What happens is, uh, as human beings, we have this thing called uh, cognitive bias mm -hmm. that you need to stay away, or attribution and so forth. So part of the critical thinking thing is that you, you better make sure that you truly understand and review and live by unimpeachable facts. Mm. And then also then, processing that and understanding that and thinking through that before you make decisions and before you rely on your instinct. So just don't go by your gut only, say, without really thinking about it, right? So so you come across a situation where your instinct's telling you, yeah, I, I got to do this. But then what discipline and critical thinking does say, okay, you got to be disciplined. Discipline says, well, I want to think about this. Uh, how am I going to think about it? Well, I need to get all the facts. I need to understand this. I need to bring to bear all my skills, all my experiences, my perspective uh, that I've developed over the years, use my other precocious characteristics that I've developed and so forth. And then you make a judgment based on that process. Well, that's what critical thinking is all about. So you get better outcomes. By getting better outcomes, you will reinforce and strengthen your instinct, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. And as we start to wind down the interview, because I know you could, you and I could sit down and talk about these management principles, and uh, I want to ask you a few wrapping up questions. Wrapping up questions. Sure. A lot of people right now are concerned about what the future holds in terms of their career long term, and you managed to build a long and successful career in the business world especially up to the highest levels playing as a board member now in several successful companies. So how can uh, young people still early in their career start setting themselves up for success for the long term? That's a great question. I, I do get that asked in various ways by a lot of young people. I try to mentor young people and I try to speak at universities you know, as much as I can. And um, it, it's really, believe it or not, it's quite simple. One is proactive what I what I told you earlier you mm -hmm. need to have your, your entire career a very proactive mindset 
And uh, it's very vital that you do that. Uh, number two is you need to also be in what I call is, is the personal uh, continuous state of improvement, right? You're always trying to, it's sort of like the, the elite athletes. If you look at the elite athletes, no matter how great they are, they're always out there training. practicing. Yeah. Training, exactly. They're building, building, they never stop. They're always trying to improve. Uh, you, no matter how great they are, they're always trying to improve. That's you. you so you, you ne- never stop developing, learning. And I, as you know, especially nowadays, it's a lot easier to do it than when I came up my career because you have podcasts, you have you have TED Talks, you have uh, online courses, you, you have so many things, right? Yeah. But um, to never stop learning. Also... Get into the company's management development programs if you can and gasp for those, volunteer for those indispensable experiences. Volunteer for an overseas job in Europe or Asia. Volunteer for whatever. Always be proactive in pursuing things. So I think if you follow, excuse me, if you follow those basic uh, uh, practices, Mm -hmm. I think will get you a long, long way. Then... There's other things, obviously, you need to work on. You know, you need to have the highest ethics. Yeah. <clears throat> you need to be a team player. You know, collaboration is very important. Yeah. You need to learn to treat people, you know, with respect. Make sure that you always, always, you know, live your life with, you know, tremendous humility and discipline. I, I think all those things together will really take you a long, long way in advancing your career. It's really difficult. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, young people, in the, I believe today, are, are they're in an environment that is a lot more difficult than I've faced because you're really competing against the globe now. You're not competing yeah. just within the United States and so forth. Yeah. The opposite side of that, looking back on your career, I know you've mentioned a lot about you know luck, being in the right place at the right time, but um, if you could share some something else, maybe that you've not shared before, which is um, a secret key to your success that you've not mentioned on this podcast or anywhere else. Is there anything else like that that you have? Yeah, I, I think, uh, yes. And I'll tell you what it is. It's really, again, great question. It's un- having unwavering faith in your abilities and your beliefs and that no matter how dark it is out there for you. We all come across dark periods in our lives, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you, are never going to be a hundred percent successful. You're going to, you're going to have failures. <clears throat> you're, you're, the important thing is to learn from those failures. And the important thing is to have unwavering faith in yourself and your ability. So, and always being a, you know, I never stop perseverance, 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 perseverance. Mm. Um, infectious enthusiasm right every yeah. job i ever tackle people used to say to me my god you're so enthusiastic you know you're so you know always there never you know i never missed a day of work yeah uh, i mean i was always at work i work you know just never ending but it's having that you know unwavering uh, confidence in your abilities i think will go a long long way because you're everything's not going to go perfect during your climb to the summit yeah that's true. And with that said, my friend, we'll reach the end of the show. But before I let you go, Sal, where can people find you, get to know more about you and your business, as well as where can they find 
your books, especially the new book that just came out two weeks ago? Yes, very simply, just go to my website, uh, com, And obviously, uh, the books are available, particularly the new books, available on Amazon. Uh, just, you know, hit CO Lifelines and you'll it'll come up. And uh, so that's two best ways to get in touch with me. But clearly through my website, uh, okay. you can communicate with me as well. Okay. And I'll make a link of that on the website once this... Um interview is published so sal i really want to thank you for coming to spend the last one hour sharing your words of wisdom sharing your advice as well as talking about your experiences which you documented so extensively in your two books and i wish you continued success as you continue your journey now as an entrepreneur running your own consulting practice to high level ceos across the globe Thank you, Chief. Thank you. I'm very honored and very uh, humbled by this, uh, for you to allow me to share my story, and I, I'm most appreciative, and uh, I really enjoyed this, and thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.